we have tonight speaking for us uh, a novelist. We also have a journalist, a historian, a biographer. We have a playwright. It's all one person. Um, Richard Rhodes is really is is a fascinating um, uh, person to have relaying history because he's clearly uh, looking for stories and he tells stories in many different ways. Um, so it's a very it's it's not a just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. It is uh, it is I think finding out about the people and telling their stories for them and finding the larger story that forms from that. Uh, tonight, we're gonna hear a lot of stories uh, in one story. Let's have a round of applause for Richard Rhodes, please. Thank you. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about just briefly is where books come from. This particular book really came in the side door. I was casting around for a subject, <clears throat> having finally finished The Nuclear Age, and thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to just pull out one year in the life of this country and somehow put it together so that it made a year's worth of sense. And being a modest person, I thought, well, I'll use the year I was born. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking more of in Moby Dick at the beginning when Ishmael gives all the big headlines about everything that's going on in the world. And the last little eight-point headline at the end is one Ishmael goes to sea. So although I was aware that if I chose 1937, my birthday on the 4th of July would be right in the middle. And that would be fun. Mostly it was just a, a, let's look at this particular year. So I bought a year's worth of microfilm of the Kansas City Star, which I grew up in Kansas City, and started cranking the crank on my home microfilm reader. And I kept noticing the Spanish Civil War. The Star in those days was a really high-quality paper. Remember, that's where Ernest Hemingway learned the beginnings of his particular kind of prose style. But here were dispatches from Spain, and I quickly got quite involved. And as I look more into the subject, I'm always looking for the technological and scientific and medical aspects of a story partly because those subjects interest me, partly because many of my books have been supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which is a foundation that's dedicated to communicating issues of science and technology to the general public and gives good grants, which makes it possible, <laughs> which makes it possible to 
actually make a living as a writer, something that's not so easy to do these days. The more I looked at the medical part of the story, the more intrigued I was because it simply doesn't appear in the, oh, 500 or so straight histories and biographies of the Spanish War. And yet, looking in the specialty literature in the British and American medical journals of the day, I was surprised and fascinated to discover just how much had happened during this war that was new in medicine. I mean, it's a truism of wars that new technologies are often developed under the pressure of need. And we all know, and I will get to that in a moment, that there were several new technologies of mass killing that were experimented with and tested out during the Spanish Civil War. But I hadn't realized the medical side. And uh, let, me, let me go on now and just simply fill in a little bit of background. Let's see, which way do we go? Yes. Here's a map of Spain to give you some idea of the nature of this war. This is the whole war, so it's a little bit confusing. And this is kind of the end of the war when the Republic was crowded into this central part of Spain. And Franco and his forces had basically surrounded them. But it was pretty much the opposite at the beginning of the war. Spanish generals, someone says, their highest ambition was to stage a coup d'etat and save their people. And that was certainly true in the summer of 1936. Franco and many other Spanish generals had basically been slowly pushed aside by the young republic that had taken power in Spain in 1931 and had begun to try to deal with all of the suffering and repression that had been the lot of the Spanish people for hundreds of years, dominated by wealthy landowners and a church that had really betrayed them, had decided to cast its lot with the rich and the powerful. There were basically no public schools. 60% of the population was illiterate. Uh, Spain was still very much a kind of third world country. Agricultural, it was basically agricultural except for the, the uh, Catalonian region around Barcelona where the Catalonians had moved more toward the mining and manufacturing. Spain is a country of many kinds of minerals and mines. One of the reasons other European countries have always been interested in it. But Franco in the summer of 1936 and some of the other generals decided that it was time to take power. They construed the the Republican government of Spain, which was a coalition government of many different kinds of political parties, ranging from communists on the left to anarchists and wherever anarchists are, I guess on the right, <laughs> truly anarchists who really did believe that you didn't need a government at all. Um, so just in, the, in late July of 36, 
Franco started putting together a force which was, interestingly, largely North African Berber mercenaries. Spain had fought several wars with the North African people in the preceding years. That's how Franco had won his generalship and his name as the youngest general in the Spanish army in the 1920s. The wars had been brutal. The North African Berbers were basically tribal peoples. Uh, Franco's and the other generals with the Spanish armies saw no reason not to use poison gas, which they did in the 1920s, long after the treaties had been written, uh, where everyone agreed not to use poison gas. Now he was basically hiring these Berbers in North Africa to fight as mercenaries for him against the duly constituted and elected government of Spain. But he had a problem, which was how to get them across the Mediterranean. They were in across from, from Gibraltar uh, in the area around Morocco and all the way over to that part of North Africa across from Gibraltar. And the Spanish Navy, which stayed loyal to the Republic, had basically blockaded and destroyed the little bit of shipping he had. So he turned to, to Mussolini in Italy uh, asking for air support. Mussolini wasn't quite sure who was running the show. There were other generals in Spain who were fighting as well as Franco and wasn't prepared to loan Franco planes all by himself. So the next step was to send some of his representatives, Franco's, to, to Germany. And these men, supported by some German businessmen, uh, went to see Hitler, who was at that time, listening to Wagner in the, uh, what is the town where the Wagner Festival is held? Beirut, right? Hitler had just come from, from uh, listening to one of Wagner's operas and was filled with the music. And when he heard these men and asking for, for air support, he, he told them first that, well, she, he said, how much money do you have? And they told him, and he said, well, you can't win a war with that little bit of money. Uh, they hadn't tapped into all the gold in Spain yet. So after, but he warmed to the subject as if Wagner started flowing through his veins. And after three hours of talking to these poor men who were waiting for their dinner, it was about one in the morning at that point, he gallantly said, we'll give you planes. Germany had at that point built a secret air force, which was officially Lufthansa, but in fact was a way of getting around the, the treaty that had been signed at the end of the First World War that said that Germany would be denied an air force. So Lufthansa originally was the Luftwaffe. All they had to do basically was convert their planes, these wonderful old trimotors that they had. And here we're seeing uh, the, the mercenaries getting ready to be flown across to the southern part of Spain, across near Gibraltar, in what was, and this is typical of this little war, the first large-scale airlift in the history of war. Time magazine in 1937 called the Spanish Civil War a little world war. 
And it did so because it was not simply a civil war within the, the territory of Spain. Other countries got involved for various reasons. Germany, in part to support the fascist movement in that part of Europe, but also, and significantly, as a kind of test bed for the new technologies Germany was developing in anticipation of the world war that it was soon going to precipitate, such as aircraft, new fighter planes, new, new ways to bomb, uh, tanks, which weren't very good at first. The Soviet Union came in on the side of the Republic in a similar way, not on the ground. And the Germans didn't supply any ground forces either, but with the tanks and aircraft that in this case the Republic needed to defend itself. And there was kind of an arms race going on all during the war between the German aircraft and German tanks and a particular German cannon, which had been designed as an anti-aircraft cannon, but turned out when set up horizontally to be an incredible tank killer. 75 millimeter, very high velocity shell. So all this was going on. And as Hitler said at a conference in that winter of 1936, he said, we'll keep fighting this war to keep the democracies busy over there so we can keep our business going over here. So he saw several good reasons to be involved in the war and basically came in on Franco's side and on the rebel side, the nationalist side, as it was called. The people, this is an extraordinary and famous photograph. This is a group of Republicans executing a statue of Christ, which, which when it appeared in, the, in a conservative London newspaper, shocked everybody terribly because it seems so blasphemous. But the church, as I said, had aligned itself with the forces of repression in Spain for the, all the way through the 20th century. And there was a great deal of hatred of the church and of its, of its behavior in Spain. And all during the war was on Franco's side, publicly announced as such. A bishop's letter came from the Vatican and was published all over the world saying the forces of atheism and communism are being fought in Spain by the gallant people of, of Franco and his North African mercenaries who weren't even Christians, although they were wearing breastplates with the cross on them. Uh, so these statues have been put up all over Spain at great expense at a time when people didn't have enough to eat. So the the execution. They also executed in the early weeks of the war about 6,000 priests and exhumed the bodies of dead nuns and priests from the various catacombs around the country to show the people that they were mortal, that they rotted just like any other corpse, if you will. As soon as the Spanish Republican government really took control of the, all of these basically uh, militia-level military forces that were coming together to, to try to repel Franco's forces in the early weeks of the war. A lot of this uh, atrocity 
level killing was suppressed. However, Franco's side continued throughout the war. It was typical of Franco's approach to the battle that he, he wanted to take each town and control it before he moved on to the next one because he understood that the people were opposed to his rebellion and that therefore he couldn't simply take over a town and then move forward. He had to control his rear. So the way he did that was basically turn his, his really pretty bloody troops loose on every town, and there were continuing large-scale atrocities. Typically, the, the men of military age would be herded into the local bullring and machine gunned. There's a description by a journalist who went to one of these places after the killing was over, and he said, I've never seen four inches of blood covering the entire surface of a bullring, but there's a lot of blood in 1,800 bodies. So that was that aspect of the war, and a terrible aspect indeed. The uh, slogan in, in Madrid was, they shall not pass. Later on, it was changed to something more like, we are going to win, but, <laughs> but, but this, sign, this sign reflected the kind of desperation in the early months of the war. Franco had basically trained hardened forces, and since the leadership of the Spanish army had defected to Franco's side, the army had basically been decapitated and didn't have any leadership. So all the local labor unions and other organizations, even the anarchists, put together militias, fought with whatever rifles and weapons they could get their hands on. There were times when the only weapons available were the ones the guys had in the front line that they were using. And the only way you could get one was to wait till someone was shot and then run forward and pick up his weapon and keep using it. It was not at all clear that that Franco wasn't going to march directly to Madrid and take over the capital and basically win the war that way. Here is Franco, five foot four, overweight. They called him Frankie Boy in the military school where he got his training and his violent socialization. Uh, but a pretty remarkable leader when you think about it. If somewhat unimaginative about doing anything else but fighting a ground war. He was trained that way as a colonial general in North Africa. Just about the time that Madrid was to fall, one of the great phenomena of the war turned up. These were the international brigaders, in this case mostly from Europe, anti-Nazi forces from Germany and France and Belgium, England, a little bit later, about six months later, it took a little longer to get it organized, there were about 6,000 American volunteers, 70% members of the Communist Party, as so many people were during the Great Depression, uh, a lot of longshoremen who had just been kind of radicalized, fighting off a, a ship owners union along the, the uh, in the harbor in New York City and in San Francisco, LA, they'd all converged on New York City and taken a ship over and volunteered, volunteered their lives to fight for what might have seemed a very abstract cause, but was not. 
was for many people in this war. I think this is why so many volunteered. There were ultimately about 40,000 volunteers. And of those, half were killed during the war. Why did they volunteer? They really deeply hoped and believed that if the war, if the fascists could be defeated in Spain, they might prevent another world-scale war. And who knows, they might have, but unfortunately, they lost. That's a general picture of the war, and I think from now on, you simply have to think of the two forces fighting back and forth, and Franco slowly, always reinforced by Germany and Italy whenever he was losing, because once those two countries, once Mussolini and Hitler committed themselves to winning, they really couldn't afford to lose the war, let Franco lose the war. So whenever he was failing, they simply fed in more, more material, more forces in the air and supported him. And Italy actually supplied about 100,000 soldiers during the course of the war. One of the reasons Italy didn't quite make it through the Second World War is that it had expended so many men and so much money fighting in Spain just before the Second World War. So let me move now to the more specific aspects that I looked at. One of the most remarkable things that happened during the Spanish Civil War was the development for the first time in war of stored blood and stored blood carried out to the front lines for, for frontline transfusion. There were two separate operations and they weren't even really aware of each other until about a year into the war. One organized by a charismatic and communist thoracic surgeon from Canada who, who was sick of Canada because he tried to install a national health service there. And Canada was then a very conservative country and didn't want anything to do with it. So Norman Bethune, who was a real firebrand, uh, thought, well, where else can I do some good in the world? And he looked at the war and said, I'm going to Spain. Once he got to Spain, he didn't want to simply be another surgeon working on the wounded on the front lines. He wanted to do something that would stand out. And he quickly realized that what was, as he saw casualties being carried back from the front lines all the way back to rear hospitals before they got much treatment, they were bleeding out. They were arriving at the rear guard hospitals, basically ensanguinated. And he realized that the, the way to do this wasn't to move the people to the, the hospital, but to move at least the blood to the front lines. So he and his fellow organizers put together a program in Madrid where they had a thousand Madrid women, the men were all fighting, thousand Madrid women donate a pint of blood every month, which was then treated with sodium citrate to prevent clotting, stored in bottles, sterile bottles, and refrigerated. And he acquired a big fish delivery truck that had a refrigeration system in it. And he then, with his aides, went driving around delivering blood, like he says at one point, like a milkman, 
to the, to the front lines and saved not only a lot of lives in the Spanish Civil War, but set up a technology that then had immediate and much wider application during the Second World War and saved countless more lives then. One of the pictures that I don't have here and wasn't able to get for the book, but it just dazzled me when I saw it, was a photograph of a table full of bottles of blood that, that Beth Hewn's people had gotten ready to be put in the truck to take to the front lines. The bottles were wine bottles and milk bottles. <laughs> the technology was so new that they had not yet standardized the containers. So here are all, I mean, it looked like good red wine, right? So <laughs> this is one of the ambulances that Beth Hune and his crews used. They were present outside of the town of Malaga when it was destroyed by Franco's forces with great loss of life and great suffering. And this was an exodus of thousands of mostly women and children streaming out of Malaga and the south, southern Mediterranean coast of Spain, trying to get away, knowing that the Moroccan forces were notorious for, for rape, for slaughter, for killing people in imaginative ways and stealing everything they could get their hands on, which obviously Franco and his people encouraged. Another figure in the war that you may well have read his wonderful book, Homage to Catalonia. This is George Orwell. Orwell turned up one day in Madrid, having just come down from England, and basically said to whomever he bumped into, where can I join up? He, he wanted to write about the war, and he didn't really know what the, the politics were, except he himself was way to the left. But then so was the rest of the republic that he would encounter. And he finally bumped into a woman who was a member of parliament who was there representing a political party. She didn't know who he was, and she really didn't trust him. She thought, who is this weird-looking, eight-feet-tall man, you know, <laughs> skinny and haggard and, and doesn't seem to know why he's here? She thought he might be a spot. She didn't know whether she wanted to help him or not. But then she noticed that he had a pair of brand-new boots hanging over his shoulder, which he explained to her he had bought and brought with him because his feet were so big, he'd heard that there wouldn't be any boots his size in Spain. And she thought, well, my God, anybody who's that dedicated to joining the war, this must be George Orwell. So she, so she sent him to, to one of the organizations, the PUM, P-O-U-M, which was a, uh, a branch of communist... Uh, one, one of the many different semi-communist parties in Spain's extraordinarily labyrinthine politics, which I don't get into much in the, war, in the book. Orwell fought or really sat on the front lines all winter, got, got fleas and lice like everyone else out there, writes about it with great irony and some bitterness, <laughs> finally came into Madrid and got a bath after his six months on the lines, and then was stuck again because Madrid at that point was having a little internecine revolution of its own among the various political groups. So he was stuck on a roof with some of his guys defending a building for three days with another party's militia over in the other roof across 
the street pointing their guns at him. Then he had to go back out. And then ironically or strangely, and this is really one of the details that I found most fascinating, he was, as I said, quite tall. He made the mistake of popping his head up above the trenches one day, and there were snipers, of course. Uh, he took a bullet right through his throat. If it had been half an inch farther in either direction, he would have been killed, which he understood and which he wrote about. As it happened, it just traumatized one of the nerves that controlled his speech. So he sort of whispered for about six months. But otherwise, he was fine. You know, to his, but at that point, he really decided it's time to go home. <laughs> he said, I'm just eating food that somebody else can eat. And I think he probably, he had gotten a little bit of an advance from a publisher to, to write this book. And I think he, his advance had probably run out. Any of you are writers, you know what that means. It's time to go home and write. Another, and of course, we all know this story. Ernest Hemingway and Martha Gellhorn, they had met in Florida when Gellhorn had gone down there with, with her mother to rest up from her father, her father's death in the previous year. Hemingway had immediately started courting her all over the land. And she, wanting to report the war, went over to Spain and they quickly met up there in the Hotel Florida, which some of you probably have read about in the recent nicely done book on the subject. I spend a little time with them because how could you write about Spain and not? But also because of all the books, and I must say I probably read 200, of all the books written about the Spanish Civil War, there's really nothing better than For Whom the Bell Tolls, despite the fact that it's officially a novel. I mean, there's so much there that's based on Hemingway's two periods three months each of being in Spain and reporting, and in between going back to the United States and raising enough money to buy 20 specially custom-made ambulances for Spain, where the Ford company would make the, the body and then uh, the whole, the coachwork would all be done by hand and then the thing would be shipped over. Hemingway basically spent every penny he had, had to go get an advance for another book in order, to, in order to keep the ambulances flowing into Spain. But he also did some wonderful reporting while he was there. Uh, this distinguished presence is J.B.S. Haldane, one of the great 20th century biologists. He was asked to come to Spain by the Republic when they thought early in the war that Franco might be using poison gas artillery shells. They'd had a few people come down with what looked like symptoms of gas poisoning. They were shells that were painted green, which was a particular type of shell from the First World War. Haldane's father, who was a distinguished biologist as well, had done a lot of work on poison gases in the First World War. And Haldane, as a young Oxford student, had helped him. So. Haldane volunteered to come down between terms at the University of London where he taught. And here he is with one of his people testing out a gas mask. He wrote brilliantly about the effects of bombing and whether gas was even a useful wartime method of fighting in these 
bombings of cities that were going on, he didn't think it was particularly effective that high explosives really were much better if you wanted to tear down buildings and kill a lot of people. And of course, by then, Hitler had loaned Franco what was called the Condor Legion, which was a 5,000-man force of bombers and fighters, the latest planes that Germany had, sometimes actually pulled out of the developing air force that Hitler was putting together um, with that Wagnerian bravado, the Condor Legion. They came over to serve as Franco's air force and in particular to work on the problem of how you can burn down a city with, with purely with bombing. The leader of the Condor Legion, the German general of the Luftwaffe, who led that force, had actually been studying in Italy the writings of Douay, the man who invented the whole idea of strategic and carpet bombing. So he was ready to try out these ideas in Spain. And they did indeed do just that. The most famous of all, of course, being the bombing of the 6,000 population Basque town of Guernica in the north of Spain on a bright, clear, sunny afternoon in April of 1937 planes coming over with high explosives to knock down the buildings, followed by planes carrying two-pound magnesium incendiary bombs to start fires, followed by planes carrying 20-pound fragmentation bombs to kill the firemen so that they couldn't put the fires out. Of the 6,000, or perhaps as many as 10,000, the town had a lot of refugees in it at that time. Of the several thousands of people, at least 500 and perhaps a 1,000 were killed in one afternoon with firebombing and the whole town was burned down. This was the first deliberate destruction of a city by aerial bombardment in the history of war. And in my mind, there's a direct line between Guernica and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, a line of development of the concept of using destruction from the air. And of course, the great irony is that the method of using firebombing to burn down cities came back to haunt Germany during the Second World War, when the United States and England developed a bombing campaign in support of Stalin and Russian forces, who were really the only allied forces on the ground in Europe until 1944. And Stalin was constantly threatening to sign a separate peace with Germany. And the only thing we could think to do to convince him that we were not deliberately trying to let him fight the war alone was to use aerial bombardment. That was one of the reasons. There were technical reasons as well. We, our bombsite didn't work very well the famous Norden bombsite had to be, plane had to be held steady for three minutes in a line in order to get the bombsite set up, and then you could drop the bombs and get the hell out. But obviously, when there's anti-aircraft fire all around you, you don't like to hold your plane in a straight line for three minutes over a target. 
we were dropping bombs as far away as five miles from the target. So the Norden bombsite was useless, and one solution was simply to extend the bombing from so-called pinpoint bombing to bombing industrial plants. And if industrial plants, then why not the homes and apartment houses where the workers live? And with that rationale, pretty soon, you've got a big enough target that you can hit it. And of course, Guernica solved Picasso's problem that year, which was he'd committed to painting a mural for the Spanish pavilion at the Paris Exposition of 1937, and he could not think of anything to paint. He had gone through a year when he hadn't painted at all. Uh, believe it or not, this man who could paint a masterpiece in a day or two. Uh, the reason seems to have been not very high-blown. He was going through a divorce, and under French law, there was, like California, mutual property law, and he wasn't going to paint any more paintings that his wife would get. Would get. <laughs> so, so for a year, Picasso didn't paint. And then, and then when he made a commitment to, to doing the mural for the Spanish pavilion for three months, that was January 37, for three months, he really could not think of anything to paint. And then he read in the Paris newspapers about the bombing of Guernica, and it really infuriated him, and he saw his subject, and he went about the business of painting what I think is certainly his best-known painting, but I think is also one of his greatest paintings. I won't even try to go into any exposition of the painting. I'm sure you've all looked at it and thought about it before, when I was an undergraduate back in the 1950s, I used to take the train down from New Haven to New York. This painting was at then at the Museum of Modern Art, and I would just sit there for an hour and just look at it. I had come from a farm in the Midwest, and this was my introduction to modern art, and it just dazzled me then, and it dazzles me now. Less well-known for a sad reason is that... Uh, Moreau also painted a painting for that exhibition. On, on comparable scale, you can see him here on his ladder painting this extraordinary angry peasant. And I put the stamp he did for the same exhibition next to it so you can get a sense of the color. But notice the difference between the two peasants. The one for the stamp is kind of a cheery guy with a big arm saying, no passeran, basically, whereas the other one with this spindly neck is, is furious and prepared with the sickle in his hand to kill. So Moreau put his feelings into that painting, certainly. Sadly, after the uh, exhibition closed, the painting, was, which was made of six panels of a kind of something called cellotex, which was a, made out of... Uh, Sugarcane, it's kind of a fiberboard material. The panels were loaded on a truck and disappeared. The painting has never been found. Whether it was hit by bombing or someone stole it, I don't know. But it's disappeared forever from history. And the only thing left are these simple black and white photographs of it. I focused, with all the famous people around the war, 
I came finally to focus on some individuals, not so well known, not maybe not known at all. This is Dr. Edward Barsky, who was a surgeon in New York of a distinguished family of surgeons, but himself a communist, believe it or not. Barsky, and also ill with uh, colitis, Barsky volunteered for the war after raising a great deal of money for ambulances and then, then thinking, who's going to go over there? Putting together the supplies for a complete mobile hospital unit. And then it became obvious that he was the one who needed to lead this operation. So he went over. He participated in every way in the war. He did a, the kind of heroic surgery that people do in wartime, where the surgeon operates for 30 hours nonstop. Uh, and then collapses for a few hours and then goes back to work. Uh, he also came back to the United States from time to time to raise more money. What was am amazing to me is I found a cache of documents that had never seen the light of day, really, at New York University's Tamman Library, which has a large labor-related collection, including a complete book manuscript of Barsky's, a memoir 400 pages long that he wrote with the help of a woman journalist that was so brown with age that we couldn't even scan it. The type, typewriter type was, was barely darker than the, than the paper by then. This should have been published years ago. But one of the tragedies of the war is that people came back from the war with whatever stories they had to tell and within four months, the Second World War began in Europe, and it simply swamped out everything. And after the war, with the rise of McCarthy-esque anti-communism in the United States, Barsky was harassed by the House Un-American Activities Committee, found in contempt of Congress because he wouldn't give up the names of his comrades, thrown in federal prison for six months, and had his license lifted, medical license, for six months, and then got out and went right back to doing what he did so well. He participated in the civil rights movement in the South. He participated in the, in, in the protests against the war in Vietnam. He continued throughout his life to be the idealistic and dedicated man he was. But that is a book that really still needs to be published. And it was full of wonderful stories including the phrase that makes the title of the book. Barsky at one point in his memoir says, war is hell, with all of the metaphysical complexities of that word. But it's also damn good company. So hell and good company. And then I just, I fell in love with Patience Darton, beautiful English nurse, big blue eyes. Patience came to Spain and turned out not to be very patient. <laughs> the Spanish were then, as I guess they are now, a very patriarchal culture. And they didn't think these nurses should be exposed to the front lines. So they put them in the back, taking care of people who had TB or whatever. And Darton just tore the place up until they finally let her go into, as it were, into battle. She would go into Spanish hospitals, which were decrepit places. 
Spain was really behind the times in its medical services. Typically, the, the, the nurses were nuns. And when men came in who were wounded, they felt too modest to undress them or clean them or bathe them or care for them. They would basically put them on a, on a lice-ridden bed and just leave them there. And, you know, they'd feed them, but they wouldn't take care of their bodies. So Darton would arrive with a few other English nurses and, and a bunch of Spanish chicas who wanted to learn how to be nurses, which had not been allowed before, and clean the place up and put everybody out of the way. She describes one hospital where they had been throwing all the hospital waste, and I mean every kind of waste from severed limbs to to bowel movements out the back windows. She said all you had to do was just flip the window open and a huge cloud of flies would emerge all over. So she got the young medical students and the chicas and the nurses and they cleaned the place up. <laughs> and that's the way she worked until she met one of the members of the International Brigade in the course of he was ill with typhoid. One of the problems, the, the Spanish evidently were uh, immune to typhoid because they'd been exposed to it in the course of their growing up. But the people coming from outside were not. So this man up here, his name is Robert Aquist, who was an anti-Nazi German Jew from Palestine. His family... His family was one of the original settlers in Palestine in the early 1930s, uh, and he had come to volunteer for the war. She met Robert and nursed him back to health. They fell in love, and they began catching a little bit of time together in the course of the war whenever they could. He had to go back to fight, but they kept bumping into each other in various places and having a little bit of time to, to be in love. It was, they were not the only couple by any means that found each other in the course of this, this curious literary human war. Uh, one of the most important battles of the war, if one of the saddest, was an attempt toward the end. You remember how divided the country was with Catalonia over here as kind of the last piece that Franco's forces hadn't reconquered. There was a river there, the uh, Elba, no, not Elba, what is it? Ebro River, yes. And they planned a surprise attack across the river to see if they could move Franco's forces back from, from basically cutting Spain in half. So this plank bridge was built and boats were built in some of the abandoned churches in the course of the spring of 1938. And then in early July, the first forces crossed the river on this little pontoon bridge. And then a, a larger bridge was built. Boats went across. It was ultimately uh, a forlorn hope. The Franco's forces by then had so much artillery, so many planes and bombs, that as one of the fighters said later, we were finally fighting off the planes and the artillery with just our fists. So there were lots of people gravely wounded. And 
patients and her nursing crew and the doctors with them, had to find a place close to the river, close to the front lines, where they could treat the most severely wounded quickly before they expired. They found this cave. It's called Santa Lucia Cave. Been continuously occupied all the way back into the Pleistocene by humans. It's about 150 feet wide. We visited it when we were in Spain. It's a memorial now. The ceiling is about 20 or 30 feet above the floor, and it reaches back into the mountain, perhaps 30 or 40 feet. And at the back, there was a spring of fresh water. Uh, in fact, the water was said to cure illnesses of the eye, and people made pilgrimages to Santa Lucia for, to put water on their eyes. Here, this group of medics built a 120-bed hospital, setting up beds on the rocky floor of the cave to receive the wounded as they were brought up from the Ebro back across the river and here for treatment. It was all but hopeless. This is patients sitting down in the valley. The nice thing about the cave was it was facing a narrow valley, too narrow for the Condor Legion fighters to be able to dive in and strafe into the cave. And of course, that huge stone lintel above the cave protected it from bombing overhead. But let me just read to you what Patience has to say as a kind of final coda of the story. This is my voice starting. The road that passed above the cave hospital led to the battlefront. From the cave vestibule, day and night, Darton, Patience Darton, watched truckloads of the last Republican draft. Children, she remembers, 15 and 16-year-olds in the last call-up going up to the front. It was more than she could bear, she thought, although there is always more to bear in war, particularly when your side is losing. Quote, and we saw what happened when they got to the front, these terrible smashed up people streaming in, and to hear those kids singing as they went up, it was terrible when I thought what was going to happen to them, and it got me down frightfully. We were working terribly hard, it was very uncomfortable, very dark in that cave, and almost everyone who came in was pulseless and seriously ill. I was on nights, and this darkness and the discomfort and the seriousness of it, I thought it wasn't worth it. I thought no war is worth all this, this misery and this horror." Unquote. Perhaps no war is, not even that first desperate war against fascism, to which the Spanish people were abandoned by the democracies and by the Soviet Union as well, so that of Spain's 24 million souls, fully half a million died directly or from hunger and disease, or immediately afterward in Franco's 100,000 vindictive executions. The more that patients Darton could bear at least came on quickly at the end of the first week of the Battle of the Ebro. The tall young British nurse, Robert Asquist's cherished pancake, he called her pancake because she'd lost so much weight, received a letter dated 31 July 1938 
from Sergeant Bert Ramin, 41st Battalion Machine Gun Company, addressed esteemed comrade. Quote, I ask you above all to accept these lines calmly, the letter began, and continued on 27 July 1938, Robert was killed, struck a mine, and died immediately. A few days before, he charged me with notifying you in the event of his death. At the same time, I am sending all his letters to you, yours to him as well as his parents, and ask you to notify them of his death. Sergeant Rahman went on to praise his comrade. We know what we have lost in him. In the next days, Fritz Jensen, the Viennese physician, hearing of patients' grief and exercising war's curious compassion, arranged her transfer to the battlefront. She would say appreciatively, the move to the front was like a sort of therapy. Before she left the cave hospital, however, Santa Lucia, the waters of which are said to heal afflictions of the eyes, Darton wrote Robert Aquist's parents in Palestine with news of his death. She wrote of her love for him and of his for her. She told them he had loved them and had cherished the photographs they had sent. She assured them these last eight months were full of joy for him. Patience Darton, one among 40,000 international volunteers, changed her mind then about the worth of war. Of that war, at least. War, as one man she knew had fought it, as she was fighting it. For me and for many, she wrote of her husband, interred now in a common grave among his comrades. He was a revelation of how to live and fight against the thing that is trying to ruin the world. Patience lived on through a long, productive life. This is the uh, Condor Legion Victory Parade. They're spelling out Franco's name. This is Patience, late in life. In the last month of her life, she went for the first time back to Spain, the late 1990s, where they were having a, a reunion of the men and women who were left from the international brigades and sat on the stage with the others who had been in Spain with her, received the honorary citizenship in Spain that the new government, now that Franco was gone, had, was conferring on these people who had come to fight simply from their hopes and the goodness of their hearts. And patients that night, she had lupus by then and was ill. She went into the hospital in Madrid that night and died the next morning. Now, just to bring this forward, I give you this graph. This is a graph of deaths, man-made deaths from war, starting at the beginning of the 20th century. And you notice First World War takes us up to about 6 million deaths in one year of 1918, I suppose. The Second World, there, there's the Spanish Civil War, that beep in the middle, actually the smaller one, the smaller one right there. And then the Second World War, the most destructive war in human history, 15 million deaths in 1943, partly from the Holocaust, partly from the, the, the actual battles. 
But then something very curious happens. In 1945, deaths, man-made deaths from war drop to a low of around 2 million and pretty much stay there for the rest of the 20th century and up to today. Now, there are various speculations about why major war seems to have been abandoned at least. And I think the only one that's really credible is that nuclear weapons made the kinds of wars that, that, that blighted the 20th century no longer possible to fight. The dream of the 30s was that aerial bombardment would be a sufficient deterrent to stop war, but it wasn't destructive enough. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki implied a level of destruction that seems to have convinced even as belligerent a state as the United States or the Soviet Union or any of the other belligerents of the 20th century that they would, their own nation would be destroyed if we or someone else tried to destroy an enemy. There are arguments on both sides and I, there's no way to prove it one way or the other. But as history, as time continues, if world-scale war truly has been ended, I think it will be because we finally discovered an explosive that basically is infinite in potential scale. Uh, we're left then, today, all these years after this little war that was so hopeful and so sadly uh, scotched those hopes, we're left in, with a world where, on the one hand, we're living a much more peaceful world, couple million deaths a year is nothing to be proud of, to be sure, but it's four million fewer than die from smoking. So we found, a, we found an inoculation, if you will. But the other side of that, of course, is that if the bombs go off, then we will have destruction on a scale far beyond anything that this graph depicts. Even it turns out a small regional nuclear war say, between India and Pakistan, would produce sufficient smoke and soot from burning cities to cause a drop in average annual temperatures worldwide of about two to three degrees, which is enough to reproduce the summer without a, the year without a summer of 1816, when the volcano Tambora caused the, the sun to be darkened enough to cause hard freezes in New England in July. So we live in a very different and ironically more peaceful but more precarious age than these people did. And I think perhaps the last thing I would say is it's probably a lot harder to be heroic. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.